to the Global Payroll Association's podcast in partnership with ADP, Women in Payroll. My name is Melanie Pitsy and I'm the CEO of the Global Payroll Association. I'm so excited to run this series of podcasts to give me the opportunity to introduce to you some of the inspirational female leaders that I've met over the last 20 years within the payroll community. My co-host today is Graham Wiley, who is the Vice President Marketing International of ADP. During our podcast, we will be discussing the highs and lows of individuals' careers and find out how they have got to where they are today. So, as they say, let's get on with the show. Hi, Graham. How are you doing? Hi, Mel. I'm good, thanks. I, I did actually, between recording some of these, did actually get out of the house over the last few weeks, but the UK is now back in lockdown. It's November. So, uh, you know, good to be back and recording the, the podcast and great to be with you and our guest today. Yeah, so um, it's nice and dark in, in our, my room at the moment. Uh, I have it been November, but we have Angela Wagner, who is the Senior Director of Global Payroll at Hilton. So she's going to make our afternoon a lot more sunnier. So hi, Angela. Nice to, nice to meet you today. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Graham. Thanks so much for having me. So, Angela, where in the world are you? I, I, I'm narrowing it down yeah, by time so- zone. Yeah, I'm in the central U.S. Central Time Zone. Um, I live just south of Memphis, Tennessee. So if uh, you're a fan of Elvis Presley, Memphis, Tennessee is where Graceland is located, which was Elvis's home. Um, but I'm just across the border in Mississippi in a, a little community. But I'm actually from Seattle, um, you know, up in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. And when I was recruited by Hilton to take this role, um, that, which has been, gosh, just 18 months now that, that I've been part of Hilton, um, I was told you, that you're going to have to relocate. We have a very large service center in Memphis, and that's where you know, we, we need to add this, this leadership um, position. So my family and I packed our bags, and we moved across the country to Memphis, and it's been quite the journey ever since. Um, but it's been fun. The people down here are are lovely. The food is fantastic. Um, you know, it's it's home for the blues, blues music, of course, Elvis. Um, great barbecue if you're into barbecue. Um, but there's something about the the southern hospitality; it really does ring true. So it's been a really great move for us. That's fantastic. Sounds sounds yeah. like a place I'm going to want to visit at some point in time when the world opens up again. I think you again. should. I think you should, and you've got Nashville just on the other side of the state. So if you're into, even if you're not really into country Western music, the vibe there is just so much fun. It's a, it's a really fun region of the United States. And as someone who's traveled quite a bit, you know, both domestically and internationally, I never really spent a great deal of time in the Southern U.S. And I just, I'm just tickled. I just, I love it here. And what's funny is the neighborhood that we moved into Everyone here is a transplant. They're from someplace else. And so we have this little community of transplants. And we all um, are just very much in love with this region. That Just the people couldn't be more welcoming and hospitable. And, you know, as someone who supports the hospitality industry, I just thought that was a really fun fit. Um, obviously, I, I know you add to, to, a certain, um, to a certain degree, but I've, I've been looking at your LinkedIn profile I, I see you've had a, a really amazing um, career, really. And, uh, you worked for the U.S. Coast Guard and you've worked for Amazon mm-hmm. and Airlines and Starbucks now at Hilton. So, you know, fantastic mm-hmm. places. Can you can you sort of like start off what you did at the uh, U.S. Coast Guard and, and sort of, you know, where you 
where your career has taken you? Yeah, I was actually raised in a, a military household. So both my, my mother and father were in the United States Air Force. Um, I have a younger brother who served in the U.S. Army. I have a sister who served in the U.S. Um, Air Force as well. And it was very much instilled in me early on that your community comes first. Um, I did not have aspirations to join the service um, when I was younger. I graduated from high school, um, went to college initially, then decided that wasn't the path for me. But I always sort of had this this calling to to serve, but I just I don't think I was maybe mature enough at the time to to do it. So um, I actually enlisted in the U.S. Coast Guard as a reservist when I was 29. So yes, I went to boot camp at 29 years old. And um, was sort of the old lady, but I it, just the time was right. I was in between jobs. My husband and I had just moved um, back to an area that we had been away from for some time. And I thought, I am not getting any younger. This will not get any easier. And if I'm going to do it, I need to just do it. And being someone who loves the water, um, I, you know, whether it was the Coast Guard or the Navy, one of those two just seemed like a natural fit. I actually am, am very pleased that I went with the Coast Guard. It's very small. Um, you know, to, in total, including reservists, there's about 50,000 Coast Guardsmen. So um, while that's a big number, everyone kind of knows everyone. And you are sort of unique in that um, you piggyback almost off of some of the other services. So our base was on a naval base. Um but I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to serve and was very open to what the opportunities were that, that the Coast Guard had available. Um, and the good news was they were like, look, you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, because you're coming in as a reservist, um, you can't be a pilot. You, you couldn't work in aviation. But anything else really is sort of open to you. And I just said, where, where's the need the greatest? And really what they needed were people who were kind of good with numbers and we're willing to do sort of the non-glamorous work of helping run the budget and managing supply and capital expenses and logistics. Um, so that's basically what I did my, my tenure. I, I learned how to drive a forklift and move pallets around in warehouses and manage supply inventory. And over the course of, of my tenure in the Coast Guard, um, was promoted a few times. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I spent almost two years on active duty, which was the last little bit of my time there. Um, our, our unit was activated to go to the Persian Gulf. My son at the time was uh, just a wee little boy. He was five months old. And my husband, who was also in the army, he's now retired, was deployed to Afghanistan at the time. And so thankfully, my unit was able to keep me stateside. Um, so I remained on U.S. soil, um, but left my civilian job to go support the unit who was going overseas. And um, that in and of itself was quite interesting. I, I My base was pretty far from my home. And so we lived in a hotel for several months while we worked out some housing and logistics matters and um, lost my civilian job during that time. They were acquired by another organization. Um, so I knew that the timing of it, I think, worked out because most of the people in my unit were overseas. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I, I was I had a little bit more flexibility, I think, than had I been, um, you know, attached to a different unit that had everybody stateside. And so, um, you know, had a bit of chance to look for jobs, revamp my resume, 
Um, and it, it all worked out. Thankfully, um, I ended up being offered a position with Amazon. And so I came off of active duty orders on a Friday and Monday morning was downtown Seattle going through Amazon's new hire orientation. Um, so no break, which hindsight maybe wasn't the best approach, but, um, you know, you live and you learn, but I, I got to say, I spent eight years in the Coast Guard, probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. It was hard. It was scary. It was unnerving. I always felt like a fish out of water, so to say. And I think from that, you know, I, I would do it again in a heartbeat, but uh, fantastic, fantastic opportunity. It afforded me to go to college um, and finish college and met some of the best people I've ever known. So uh, if anyone's sort of floundering and not really sure what to do with their lives, you know, serve others, whether it's in, you know, the armed forces or something else. But I think there's nothing better you can do to grow and to give back. Um, but that really set me up for success. Like I said, I, I went to Amazon after that and having supported the Coast Guard um, for the almost two-year period, I think that really set me up to go into that environment um, Amazon is incredibly fast paced. It's competitive. There's a, there's structure, but yet there's chaos. And I think it takes a very special individual to really thrive in that type of an environment. For me, I thrived in it for about a year and a half and said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I loved working there though. Um, I was exposed to wonderful leaders. I was exposed to new practices, new thoughts around payroll. I had already supported payroll for a number of organizations prior to that, but not at the scale, you know, of Amazon. Um, at the time, I think we were supporting around 300,000 uh, U.S. employees, plus everybody that was overseas in some form or fashion. And in parallel to all of that support, we were moving the financial operations work from the, the headquarters in Seattle, Washington, over to Hyderabad, India. And so it, it was, you know, similar to my experience in the Coast Guard. It was frightening and challenging and, and stressful and rewarding. And every day there was something new to, to solve for, to discover. Um, I was, like I said, I'd mentioned um, exposure to certain leaders. Um, Anne-Marie, who you've had on your, your podcast, I was exposed to her as a leader um, and very quickly um, saw her as someone that not only was a payroll professional, but someone who could navigate really well in very highly matrixed organizations um, that were incredibly pressurized. Um, but from there, I needed just a break. Um, my son was still young. And um, at that time, my husband had just retired from the service. And so we were in this sort of transition period of what do we need to do um, to, I think, sort of become a cohesive family union unit. And what came from that was I needed to be home more. Um, and I needed to probably be closer to home. I was making a pretty long commute um, up to the Amazon headquarters from our home. So I um, was offered a job with Alaska Airlines. And if you've never flown on Alaska Airlines, you must. They have the best customer service. Um, and they, they really are a great organization, but much smaller organization. The pace was almost 180 degrees opposite from, from what I just came from at Amazon, um, but still no shortage of opportunity. But everything was sort of down, um, down scale. So again, pace, you know, time that was uh, required of me to, to really be in the office. Um, it just, just very different. But that really 
that environment, of course, um, gave me a ton of exposure to uh, the challenge of collective bargaining agreements. Um, and so for those that might not be familiar with that, you know, in, in the United States, we have uh, unions and their collective bargaining agreement is, is the guidance that governs, you know, how they get paid, what types of holidays they get, um, you know, sick time, pension, all of that. It's very unique to a specific union. So you take that collective bargaining agreement you overlay that with, of course, your corporate policies, and then you overlay that with your jurisdictional policies, and then you overlay that with the federal government's policies, and you have quite a ball of confusion that you have to figure out how to navigate. Um, and so it, it was a really great opportunity, um, really tight-knit group of folks there, um, and again, you know, took away just a lot of great learning again, had great exposure to a number of different leaders whom I still look up to and, and a few I consider mentors. Um, but I think after a few years, I was sort of craving that pace again and really wanted to, to have my, my remit include, um, you know, multiple markets. So with the airline, we supported the U.S., Canada, um, parts of Mexico, and then Costa Rica. And um, I just, I wanted more. And around the same time, I got a call from a recruiter at Starbucks who said, we have a gentleman here who is retiring and this is the role and you came recommended. And so we, we met and talked about the opportunity, um, was more global in scope, higher volume, um, and a lot of transformation happening. And I had this moment of, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I can do that. It's probably not the right fit. Um, but got over my nerves and formally applied, interviewed, and then subsequently was hired and was with Starbucks for three years going so through. Just, a, just yeah. on that, because I think that's, that's, that's fascinating. There's, there's, there's two parts there I, I just want to almost double click on yeah. if we can. That you sure. glossed over it, but, but that moment of, of almost imposter syndrome, how did you yeah. get over that? What, what, what thought process did you go through to actually decide to commit to applying for that role? Mm-hmm. I never got over it. <laughs> I never got over it. I, you know, I, I thought about it. I came home that day. I was very excited. You know, I, I shared with my husband that, gosh, I have this opportunity before me. You know, I haven't formally applied, but the recruiter reached out through LinkedIn and said, you know, X, Y, and Z, and, and you should apply. And I said, but I don't have this. I don't have this. I don't. I mean, I read through the, the job spec and all the criteria and I said, I haven't done some of these things or I've done it on such a smaller scale or I didn't lead it. I was part of it. Um, and, you know, my husband is a combat veteran. He was airborne. He was infantry. He jumped out of airplanes. He's been in combat zones. I mean, obviously very um, intense situations that take a lot of just sort of muster and courage to to get through. And he said, you're never going to fit every job spec. Like th that's just not going to happen. So either it was sort of very blunt, like apply for it or don't. But if you don't apply for it, don't whine about it. <laughs> if you don't get like, you can't, you can't know what you're capable of unless you actually try. And so I just said, you know, what the heck they wouldn't have reached out if they weren't somewhat interested. Um, and so I just did it. And I think part of it, because I, I had this, assumption that, well, maybe I'll get the, the job and maybe I won't. 
and I, and I, it was kind of freeing in a way because I think I had just accepted that I got a really great position now. I have a really wonderful team. If it doesn't pan out, you know, what's the harm? You know, I'm still very happy. And um, I just I was I curious about it because it's it's <laughs> such a um, it's such a gender stereotype almost that a, a man yes. will apparently look at a recruitment position and say, oh, here's how I can bend it to me. Um, yes. And uh, a woman will look at that position and, and see perhaps reasons why she wouldn't be qualified. So you, you almost jumped over it. But I thought it was such a lovely example, given your history and everything that you've mm-hmm. been through and, and being in hard and scary and fast paced environments that even a Coast Guard, even as someone who's working with one of the fastest growing businesses, when, when you get mm-hmm. approached, you still pause for thought, which I think is fascinating. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, it's funny you put it that way, Graham, but it's it's very much true. Right. I read through I was I was you know, before seeing the job spec and just having the conversation with the recruiter, you know, I, I had that little voice in the back of my head going, yeah, this will be amazing. It'd be so good for you. It'd be so fun. And uh, plus you love coffee. So this is just, this is amazing. And when I looked at the job spec, there was something about that activity where my mind said, I don't know that you can do this. So it's just funny, right, how it works out. And, and maybe, you know, to your point, Graham, maybe that is a, a much more female thing to do. You know, once I've seen what I deem to be the quote unquote facts of what's needed to be successful in that role, I, I thought I was lacking. I came up short. So it's just it's and just an, and I love that you called that out. And then the second part of that I thought was really interesting because you were taking over from someone who was retiring. And and we talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about generational shifts in the workplace. And Mel and I Mm -hmm. and a number of these podcasts have talked about, you know, shortage of talent coming into the payroll industry. So so here you are coming in with those questions in your mind, taking over from a gentleman who's retiring. So one would guess had been doing the job for a period of time or there was a way in which the Mm -hmm. job was done. And then again, you almost glossed over it with lots of transformation happening. And again, I'd love to just dig down a little bit when you got in, what did you do to drive the transformation and and how did you do it? Yes, it was a very interesting time to be there. So at at the time, Starbucks had um, gone through an acquisition of Tivana um, and they were undergoing a, a harmonization of uh, the Tivana payroll team, including their technology, and trying to get it all integrated into the Starbucks technology and Starbucks systems. So you had that happening in one lane. You had uh, massive global expansion and then massive retraction in another lane. And by retraction, I don't necessarily mean the business as a whole. Starbucks was going through the shift where it was more... Um, uh, financially fee- financially beneficial for them to switch from having so many company-owned stores in Europe to franchise models or license models. And so you were decreasing headcount, you know, in certain areas while still expanding the brand. But of course, that has a direct impact on your payroll. Um, and so there were all these things sort of in flight. Uh, it was a very large team, and a lot of them had a lot of tenure, uh, including the gentleman that retired. He's very well respected. In fact, when I, I learned sort of who some of the key players were at the time, that was one of the the real, I think, catalysts for me to kind of make sure that I could nail the interview because I thought if I have exposure to some of these folks that are what I call payroll famous, uh, you know, that's only going to benefit me and make me a better payroll professional, but also a better leader. So very much was looking forward to having this transition time with, with a number of these folks. Um, you know, it was crazy because to your point, Graham, there were a lot of sort of legacy practices, which also meant there were some legacy mindsets that had to be changed. 
um, and really kind of moving away from the past into not only the current, but to set everyone up for success for the future, we had to do a lot of mindset work. And really what that came down to was crafting a vision for the future. What does it look like to be a center of excellence? What does it look like to operate a certain way? You know, when we talk about um, transitioning transactional work and replace it with value add activities, what does that look like? And for some, um, employees, that's very scary, especially if you've been doing work a certain way for a very long period of time. And to be fair, there's probably some skill gap there. So in the midst of all of this change, you have to also figure out how to take care of those individuals that either need to, you know, have additional training or get comfortable with technology in a way that they've maybe never had to be comfortable with it before. Um, And surely you end up with some attrition, you know, some just don't want to change. Some just struggle to change. They want it, but they just are, are, you know, in a position to just not maybe grasp it. Um, and it's frustrating as a leader to see that because especially when you have an employee that you can see is trying, they're taking classes online, they're reading books, they're um, watching YouTube videos on how to do certain things. And it's just not, it's just not clicking for them. I mean, that, that is challenging because you want to start to make exceptions for the type of work um, that those folks maybe retain. Um, But that doesn't necessarily set the department nor the organization up for success. And so, you know, there was some of, you know, are there other departments that they might be best suited for? They're a great employee. We don't want to lose them. But the job itself now has evolved in such a way that they, they're struggling to keep up. So um, I spent a great deal of my time really in sort of the talent development space. Um, was very fortunate to work with some wonderful leaders while I was at Starbucks. And obviously the company went through some transformation, right? We had Howard, Howard Schultz retire um, or step down as a CEO while I was there. Um, Kevin Johnson came on board. Um, our, our team payroll actually got reorganized towards the, the latter part um, of my time there. And we were part of the total global rewards team, which I thought was genius. It was genius because not only logistically did we move all of our departments to sit with our new team, but there was something about being part of the the total reward space, bringing everybody closer to compensation and benefits, you know, global mobility, um, all of that. Um, and we worked obviously very closely with those folks already, but there was something about having the same formal leader and sitting shoulder to shoulder with these other individuals that led those different um, centers of excellence, it, it, to me, it just broke down so many barriers. And so, so where, um, where yeah. had the function reported previously? Um, prior to my arrival, uh, years prior to my arrival, it was part of the finance organization. Right. It was then reorganized into human resources along with several other um, practices as well to be part of a sort of an HR shared services model. Right. Um, over the course of time, though, I think, and through different leaders that came in, um, they recognized that, you know, payroll is really interesting in that you, you've got people who are performing sort of customer service type activities that don't necessarily need to be payroll subject matter experts. And so one of the things that we started to do is carve out what do you need to be a, a subject matter expert for and what don't you. And we sort of use that as a as a 
guidepost on what work would we transition to one of my peers' teams who is performing a lot of that internal customer service for employees um, and what would be retained within payroll. And that was sort of how we started to bifurcate the two and say, this is, this is our drive to becoming a COE. Um, and so, stage, and part, yeah. Sorry, at this mm-hmm. stage, just for, for a sense of perspective, how many countries, I know there's, there's change in terms of number of um, employees because of the change in the model, but how many countries are you managing through this COE and the complexity of those, those different languages and different cultures? Well, initially, it was just North America, so so primarily, of course, the U.S. Um, and Canada. Um, and with that, you know, slowly over time, the goal was to start to weave in the U.K. market. Um, as we started to do that, though, we ended up having um, another M&A um, activity with Nestle. Um, so, every, so a lot of work paused and was reprioritized. Um, so we ended up pulling some of our, our business away from under the Starbucks corporate umbrella, and that was moved IP and people and all over to Nestle. So that became a great deal of work and was a priority for some time. So the end goal was, of course, to get a lot of the key markets woven into the COE model. One of the markets that was, was interested uh, but was so small, and we really struggled to figure out how would we make it sort of a, a cost-effective proposition for everybody was um, Hong Kong. And Hong Kong really had, um, uh, was a support center. So we were trying to figure out, you know, could we pilot uh, a market like that or a market like Thailand where it's, it's small enough that we could kind of play with it a little bit. And then once we sort of got the processes down and were, um, sort of smooth sailing, how can we now go replicate that to onboard some of these other markets? Um, we did bring in Puerto Rico, which obviously not another country, but they were operating standalone from the rest of the United States. Um, so we were able to bring them into the umbrella. But it just, like I said, we ended up having to pause to support the other M&A activities. But um, I, I think with the footprint between in just North America alone, you're talking you know, roughly 300,000 individuals. So uh, that in and of itself is incredibly challenging. Yep, in almost every city on every corner for <laughs> times. Yeah. So, so 18 months ago, you moved to Hilton um, and mm-hmm. the global payroll in, in, in Hilton where you are now. So can you tell us a little bit about the scope of, of your current role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the, the journey for, for Hilton has been a really interesting one. So they just, they went public again um, several years back. And as they were um, making some, some changes as a result of going public, um, one of the things that, that was decided upon was we, we need to find ways to really enable the leaders out in the properties to really focus on guest experience. And, you know, from, from due diligence, they found that people, people spend a lot of time on administrative tasks. Um, the finance leadership said, we're going to stand up our own internal grouping of COEs um, called Hilton Accounting uh, Financial Services. And for those managed properties that are in our portfolio, if they want this sort of additional support to help us pull some of this transactional work out of their property, we'll run it through our COE. Part of the value proposition is not only do you get economies of scale, but we also have a vendor partner with a shared service center footprint. So there's things that can get done in a lower cost market. 
um, value proposition was was bought into by a great deal of these managed properties. And early on, because the, the focus was finance, and at that time, payroll was part of finance, um, payroll was, was not initially in scope um, for this shared services COE model. Um, fast forward to 2018, and the human resource uh, leadership deployed a new human capital management and payroll platform. They went up into the cloud, so we're, we're leveraging Oracle Cloud. And... I think through that deployment, and again, this was prior to my arrival, there was a lot of, of course, um, there's a lot of spotlight put on payroll um, at the corporate level. But of course, that support trickled down to all of the different properties since they were already providing sort of the engine for payroll for all of those properties that are in Hilton's U.S. managed portfolio. And um, there was a realization that payroll should not only be part of this this internal COE model, and it kind of already was at that time, but not really. It was sort of an interesting hybrid. Um, but they also recognized that we've been operating our markets very much independent of one another, and there's so many great synergies to be had that we really need to figure out a way to kind of tie it all together. So that's how my role came about. Um, I was to help kind of be the one to put the, the wrapper around payroll and help stand up a uh, center of excellence um, and still let the good work of this, this um, shared services model in the finance space continue to evolve. And, you know, when you're going through big transformation like that, it, it's a multi-year effort, of course, not only to transactionally move everything, but also to just get people um, familiar with new ways of working and um, so I came in kind of at the tail end of some of the dust settling. There was still some transitions happening of work from properties to the shared service center. Um, currently, my what's under my remit is the U.S. market and the U.K. market. Um, other than China, those are our two, of course, larger markets um, as far as where we have a, a great deal of managed hotels um, and just team members that we support. Um, so we're... We are very much uh, what I felt like we we hit a really good stride last year, um, had a very successful year in close for 2019. We were um, in the midst of working through a deployment project in the UK market to pull their payroll into the Oracle Cloud platform that we've invested in. And then along came COVID. And everything paused um, for good reason, because, you know, as everyone's aware, you know, hospitality is one of those industries that just got hammered by the pandemic. Um, obviously, you know, without people traveling, what do you do? Yeah. So we've, we've had to scale everything back. But what we did continue to do this year, and I'm so impressed, we, we are, because we are still, from a payroll standpoint, evolving to a center of excellence, we still had work to transition to a shared service center um, most of that, or all of that work, I should say, was currently performed by the team that was based in Memphis. And back in April, um, you know, I was very reticent to put a lot of effort into those transitions because we just didn't know how much money were we going to have at our disposal? Am I going to have to cut, you know, cut heads? Am I going to, like, all these unknown factors. But, um, through the partnership that we've developed with our third party provider. And then of course the, the great leadership that I have, we made the decision that, you know what, we're just going to try it. 
let's just take a few activities rather than a whole list and just see how it goes. And I, I couldn't be more proud of, of the team. I couldn't be more proud of the shared service center team. Everyone still recognized, I think, you know, the vision that I set for the, for the team and said, here's what we're going to do. But one of the key enablers for this vision to come to reality is to create capacity for our, our COE, what we're calling our COE team members. And so one of the ways we're creating capacity, of course, is through transitioning some of this work to a shared service center. Um, but we, we got a, a number of key processes transitioned this year. In fact, we're winding up the, the last sort of wave. Um, and the only holdup is we're trying to work through some of our, our system security issues and user access issues. But um, I'm just so impressed. I, I think it just really solidified how resilient people are. Um, and, and, you know, again, with the backdrop being a pandemic, you know, business not being what we would like it to be. Um, we do have fewer staff than we had prior to COVID. Um, even our shared service center team members, they're all working from home as well. And so we pulled it off. And I think that really illustrated just the trust that we have with one another. I think the, it also really illustrated though, for me is we're capable of so much more, you know, we're capable of so much more than we think we are. And, um, and just, like I said, I couldn't be more pleased. And it, it's something Mel and I have talked about a couple of times on these podcasts and in other conversations, I think you mentioned the the spotlight on, on payroll. And I think, you know, February, mm-hmm. March, April really put payroll in the spotlight and, um, for a function that a lot of stakeholders around the business kind of assume just works um, mm-hmm. in the face of all of those challenges, the the logistical challenges of having people work from home, the technology challenges and data security of, of, of the technology that enables that, the the morale and impact challenges of, of, of having to work incredibly hard at, in a period of uncertainty. I think generally mm-hmm. the, the, the stories I hear from within the payroll profession is, is that the industry as a whole has really responded to keep their the peers that they look after, right? The the, the people who you were mm-hmm. responsible for getting paid, your team has responded in a way that that ensures those people continue to get paid. And and it it just sounds you almost listening to your career story, it's 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 almost like it was all training for 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 this kind of adversity um, <laughs> in terms of the, <laughs> the Coast Guard experience, and then you know moving into fast dynamic changing environment, and I. Yeah, you know, I, I I love that notion that you know, how people respond. You never know how you're going to respond or what you can achieve until you're really tested. And it yeah. sounds like I mean, all teams have been tested, but definitely in your category and 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 in the world that the, the geographies that you operated and the world you operate in, it, it it sounds like it's it's been you know a really testing mm-hmm. time that the organization has found you know just new strength and an ability to respond. So mm-hmm. I'd I'd love mm-hmm. to I'd love to understand a little bit more and 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 maybe just take a closer look at at role models in your past and, and defining experiences? Because I think we'll probably all look back on 2020 and, and have a defining experience of 2020 in terms of just it's been such a crazy, crazy year. Um, but as, as you look back across your career, what would be the one mm-hmm. or two defining experiences that you would draw out as, as having prepared you to, to lead through the kind of current situation that you're, you're leading in? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny you put it that way, Graham, and that it was all sort of like training for this. Um, and I, I shared with my team, you know, where else in your career will you have a front row seat to ha- how to very quickly operationalize, 
you know, changes, how to very quickly adapt. I mean, I've, I've never seen rules and regulations get passed so quickly. And you have to become a subject matter expert on it overnight so that you can go be the advisor to the rest of the business. You'll never have that. I've never experienced that, at least not to, you know, the, the, the intensity that we're experiencing it now. And so I think for all of those that um, were payrollers before the pandemic and have stuck with it, keep sticking with it because this is only going to make you stronger. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had the privilege to work for a number of organizations in my career and very early on, um, you know, like many, I made mistakes. The one in particular, I really didn't think was a huge deal, but, um, I, I transactionally did something incorrect. I caught my own error, reached out to the employee that it impacted and kind of went about my day. And fast forward to several days later, my boss pulled me into her office and she, somehow it came up in conversation. So she was caught off guard and, and, you know, said, you know, you need to tell me when things like this happen. And, um, thought, Oh, you know, you're right. You know, didn't seem like a big deal, but I can understand why, you know, I don't want my leader to ever be surprised by something like that. Um, but for months after that, um, that was the, that mistake was the only thing that seemed to come up in conversation. Uh, it was like, I couldn't come out from under it. And, you know, so from that, you know, such a simple little, I, I guess, experience, and it seemed, you know, c- kind of vanilla in comparison to other experiences. But what I learned from that was, as a leader, you need to give people the permission to fail, because you're not going to learn any other way. And, but, but in parallel to that, you also then have to, you know, obviously, if they, they're not, you know, you want to make sure they're not making the same mistake repeatedly, but they're going to fail, and you need to be okay with that. And you need to be comfortable enough as a leader that you can provide that air cover to your leadership team if in the event, you know, that failure has some sort of, of course, adverse business impact. Now, obviously, there's varying degrees of mistakes and failures, but I I think that, you know, I I would never want to hold someone's mistake over their head. Um, And that was really how I felt, you know, those last few months that I was with that organization, which is unfortunate, you know, this, this leader was lovely. um, But there was just something about it that, um, you know, for whatever reason, we just couldn't move past that mistake and the fact that I didn't, you know, timely bring it up and she had to bring it up. So that that was a great learning lesson for me that to this day still very much rings true. The other is, um, some years later, um, I was in a, a conference room presenting out some tax changes and how, uh, you know, what's the cost to the business and what are the ways we're going to find ways to keep costs low. And, and as I was going about my presentation, I'm looking around the room and I just sort of had this weird moment of there's some very influential and powerful people sitting around this table and they're all listening to me. And they're genuinely interested in what I'm sharing with them. And I don't know what it was about that day, that moment, those people, that room, but there was something in that, that when I walked out of that room that day, I was, I was different. And what I mean by that is, I think we touched on imposter syndrome earlier. It was sort of that I've got this, Mm. like I, I deserve to be in this room. I deserve to be in that seat. I deserve to be with these people because I'm capable and that, and again, I don't know what it was about that moment, um, but it just, that's just one of those things that I, I, you know, I want to create sort of that same um, experience 
for the people that I lead. You know, I want them to have those moments of, I've got this. I don't have to have someone tell them, you know, that they can do it and that they're doing okay and that they deserve to be at the table. I want to create that environment so that they feel it and don't have to be told. Um, and I just, there's something about, again, that moment. In fact, I'm like, I'm almost getting emotional about it because it was so powerful. I remember driving home that day and I just, I just felt different mm-hmm. from that moment forward. Um, and like I said, I can't, I can't carve out or, or surgically remove what the, 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 the variables were that created that condition. But um, that was a very powerful moment for me. Very defining. When you worked at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. So the gentleman that um, I, I know who you took over um, and mm-hmm. I, I would say he, he was um, famous within the USA within payrolls. You said earlier, payroll yes. famous. And mm-hmm. I, I can imagine quite, quite big shoes to, to step into. W- was that process quite hard? Were, were there sort of techniques uh, or was there circumstances that you dealt with for the first time or was it quite an easy process to, to step in those shoes to, to carry on that role? Oh, not at all. It wasn't easy. <laughs> not at all. I, um, we had about a year ish, um, overlap and several leadership changes, senior leadership changes during that transition period. And every senior leader that, um, ended up with payroll under their remit had a different point of view on, you know, what should he do? What should I do? What's the timeline? And so all we had this, we worked very well together. Um, and I think I'm very grateful that he gave me that space to be myself because we are two very different leaders, um, and have very different styles. And, um, you know, I think we have realized success in our careers just by being authentic and sort of true to who we are and how we operate. Um, but I think having those the, the input sort of coming into us from some of the different leaders, I think that's really what made it challenging. It wasn't the dynamic, you know, that he and I had, he, he was part of my interview loop. He, you know, weighed in on hiring me. Um, you know, so I felt very confident in that he felt confident with me and my abilities. Um, but it was definitely awkward. I'll be very honest. And, and I think, um, you know, anytime somebody has been with an organization for a long time, they're a legacy, you know, everyone knows you, everyone knows about you and, and, you know, they've, they've led and developed and created and molded. And, and so their, their DNA is, their thumbprints are all over the place. Um, and I think that sort of forces you, at least you have to find a way to be confident in your abilities in some form or fashion. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. You're always going to compare yourself to that individual. And um, I know that that's not what he wanted for me. He wanted me to come in and be me and lead the way that I lead. Um, And most of the team, I think, understood that. Um, There were a few that I think really struggled just because when you work with somebody for so long, they're family. And there's going to be sort of that, that level of a, a constant measurement between the two. And again, my job was to just, you have to tune out some of that noise. I took in the feedback um, as professionally as I could, you know, well, they never did it that way. Why do we have to do it this way? And we've never been asked to do that. And, you know, and it's, they're fair questions. Um, but I had to make it very clear that, you know, I'm, I'm my own person. And the world is changing and the business is changing. And 
we're going to do these things differently and here's the rationale. Um, so it did, it took a bit of time and, and very, I mean, I don't think you can ever, ever really fill the shoes of someone, you know, everyone's so different, um, you know, from a, a technical functional perspective, I think, you know, just given the, the experiences and the, the tenure that, um, my predecessor had, I was not going to measure up in the same way. And I had to give myself some grace to know that I'm not going to have the same level of, of expertise. Um, so it was hard. It was hard from that standpoint, but at the same time, I, I loved every minute of it. And I learned so much, um, in just sort of how he navigates and operates and, and champions different things and, and gets, individuals on board and his style of influence. And so, you know, definitely a leader that I had admired before going to Starbucks and somebody that I still greatly admire. Um, and it's just, you know, like I said, it, it, it was hard. It was challenging, but I think anything that's worth it is going to be hard and challenging. And so as you look back on, um, the career to date, um, and, and don't worry, I'll be asking you to look forward in a second, but as you look back on the, the, <laughs> the career to date, um, what, what advice would you offer somebody who's entering the industry now, who's maybe at the, the start mm-hmm. of their career, taken their first payroll job, perhaps fallen into it? Mel and I talk about that a couple of times as well, about how people seem to mm-hmm. fall into payroll and then, and then stay there. So what advice mm-hmm. would you offer to help people think about building their career in payroll? Uh, I have my own, of course, personal philosophy, and I, I call it, I have what I call the three C's, uh, communication, compassion, and choice. And what I mean by that is in the communication space, you've got to sort of organically know when to be super proactive with your communication, um, how to very clearly articulate what your needs are, um, what the boundaries are to not only oversee a team and to lead, but, you know, for the, just the management of payroll. So communication, compassion, um, and I think some people sometimes confuse empathy with compassion, right? Empathy is, is internal. You know, I, I'm empathetic to X, Y, Z, but compassion is, is the outward, you know, expression of that. Um, so you have to be compassionate so that people can see that you genuinely understand or want to understand where they're coming from. And then lastly is choice, um, you're in control. It's a mindset. You know, how do you reframe things so that you're choosing to, you know, give someone the benefit of the doubt. You're choosing to see things as an opportunity. You're choosing to, you know, find ways to capitalize maybe on challenges. And I think that if you struggle greatly with those three things, then perhaps payroll is not for you. Um, I think everyone can benefit from spending a bit of time, if not in the payroll department, I think, you know, shadowing and I've had, um, you know, executives during the points in my career want to see the, the work sort of live, you know, because they're very curious. Why does something take so long? Why is it so hard? Why is it so this? Why is it so that? It's, well, it's best if you just come see it <laughs> um, and don't come on a random Thursday. Like you need to come in when everybody is heads down because there are things that will take 36 hours. There are things that will take so much analysis um, that you really can't just sort of document it all in a nice flow chart and say, well, here's why it takes this time or here's why we have this criteria. 
And those executives have walked away after spending just a few hours with the team going, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think um, I mean, that, that, that's <laughs> remarkable because, again, we, we talk about you know, payroll being put in the spotlight, it, in particular, given the, the current situation and the, the challenges that a business is, is facing and how so often it's it's misunderstood by its its stakeholders mm-hmm. because they haven't taken the time to, to come and look. And in fact, you know, a lot of conversations I'm having at the moment are around people taking a new look at pay mm-hmm. in light of the way the world has has changed and thinking differently. And you made, you made a comment there about choice to see something as a challenge or an opportunity. So I promise mm-hmm. we'd get to forward looking because we've, we've done a lot of sort of looking back over your career because it's, it's a great story. But as you look forward, as you as you are in the role you're in now and the situation that you're in now, dealing with all the issues you've, you've dealt with over the last particularly nine months, but over the 18 months in the transition, what mm-hmm. opportunities do you see if people are taking this new look at pay and trying to understand it a little bit more clearly and see what the opportunity could be? I'd love to get your take yeah. on where those opportunities are. Yeah, I think, and I'll, I'll speak to this, um, Graham, more through the lens of um, a, you know, a larger enterprise, because um, I think that's really where, I mean, there's, there's room for improvement at every organization, hands down. But, um, you know, my, my experiences are such that, you know, it's, it's a lot easier for me to speak to, you know, how we practice payroll in these very large multinational organizations. Uh, I am very excited about the change that's coming in the payroll space. And for some that have been in payroll for a long time, they're a little bit nervous. And I've made this claim before, and I'll stand by it. At some point in the future, whether it's three years, five years, 10 years, I think, I believe that these very large multinational organizations will not really have a dedicated payroll department. I think what they will have is they will have a small, whether it's a center of excellence or or not, but they will have a small group of subject matter experts who can help advise and guide the organization through um, legislative, regulatory matters, um, helping to, I think, educate the business on different practices that probably need to be thought through in different markets. Um, You know, it's more expensive to conduct business, even here in in the U.S. There are certain pockets of the U.S. It's by far more expensive to have an employee. So I think that's what's going to happen because businesses are starting to, I think, recognize that you, you can't expect the same group of people to know everything and be very good at everything. We're seeing it now with the spotlight on payroll and, and all of those practitioners that have performed heroics to keep the business afloat you know, during the pandemic. And I think with technology, with automation, you know, and AI and RPA and, and all of that, um, and, you know, all of the, the great, you know, strides that are being made, I think, to find ways to create capacity. You know, again, I think that's what's going to happen. And what I've even shared with my own leadership is I'm trying to figure out what are the tools that I need to add to my toolbox because the role that I play today either won't exist, it'll become superfluous in a few years, or it will have morphed and evolved into something very different. And so where do I have gaps? But really, what am I interested in doing? Is it analytics? Is it technology? Is it, um, you know, more in the taxation area? Like, what, what is it that I'm most interested in? The answer is all of it. I love all of it. But, um, you know, I, I, think that's what, I think that's what we're going to see. I think, again, through the lens of, of a large multinational organization, I think we're going to see a shrinking footprint of payroll practitioners 
in the form that we know them as today. And different bits of maybe what your payroll department does today will go away or will be absorbed by more of a either a shared service center or more of a sort of customer service type um, organization. Again, where do you need subject matter expertise and where don't you? And we're going to continue, I think, to, we're going to continue to do that at Hilton as far as creating that capacity so that we can be a true center of excellence and provide that guidance and expertise um, ideally across many more markets, not just the U.S. and the U.K. Um, but there's just there's so much cool stuff coming down the pipe. But I think as a company, many of them are starting to take a look at payroll as a strategy rather than just a function. And that ties, of course, to your compensation practices, your frequency of pay. Um, you know, pay cards are not a new thing in the U.S. market. They're becoming, um, I think, more broadly accepted in other markets like the U.K., um, but you also have these, I think, organizations that are almost taking advantage of that and they're building a technology to expedite someone's pay, but it's coming at the expense of almost a loan. And I think that can become a bad habit to entice your employees to get into. So how do you weave in financial wellness? But I think all of that has to be enabled with technology in some form or fashion. But I think those that have the subject matter expertise and the regulatory component of it has to be part of that technology team to help guide them through some of those pitfalls. Um, because that's, you know, we get pitched every day by technology companies to say, pay your, you know, pay your employees every single day. It'll be amazing. Well, yeah, it would be amazing. I want to get paid every day. How awesome would that be? But there's, there's downstream impacts to that. And those have a real cost. And I think some of those technology firms don't understand that because they're not payroll people, they're technology people and they're sales people. So how do we sort of blend them all together so that we can create a really cool program, you know, to deliver pay more expediently, but not, but not at the same token, you know, increasing the business's cost to do so. But yeah, I, I think the, the payroll practitioner today will look very different 10 years from now. I think the practitioner today looks very different than they did 10 years ago. Um, and the skills that are needed today, you know, are, are becoming um, almost a bit more black and white in that I need you to be a SME in these different things, but I also need you to understand certain technical components um, so that when we go through another change in technology, you're, you're equipped, you know, to handle such a change. Um, so yeah, I, I'm excited. I just, I think there's so much great, just great tech happening, you know, that we can capitalize on it. And I think as a payroll professional, we are so, we're in such a great position right now because we have the spotlight on us to really capitalize on the moment and work with those technology providers. You know, like, like I said, we have, um, we have a great relationship with Oracle. We're on Oracle Cloud. And so giving them feedback and participating in client advisory board conversations around, here's what we need. Here's the trend we're seeing. Here's what, you know, our team members are craving. How can you help sort of co-develop this capability so that, you know, it might be good for your product, but it's also going to be really good for Hilton's team members. And so there's a lot of that happening, but I think it's very much, not just with Oracle, but I think it's just very much in its infancy, I think there's a lot more opportunity there, you know, for those technology providers to. I think that I think that payroll yeah. that payroll insight that the the payroll leader mm -hmm. or the payroll professional brings is is so valuable because 
actually that, that real-time pay or anytime pay in different regulatory environments gets treated very differently. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it's much more complex than perhaps the first pass technology narrative might look when you look at it mm -hmm. through the lens of the payroll expert rather than just the, what the technology is capable of. And that Absolutely. global complexity of the regulatory environment across all the different countries in which Hilton operates is, is just it, it relies on that expertise to, to navigate it and, and to capitalize on the opportunity for it to be a strategic function, as, as you say. So I think that's yeah. a very exciting vision for the function. And I absolutely love the answer um, when you were talking about the advice. I think a lot of people from outside the industry, if you ask them, you know, what does it take to be successful in payroll? They'd say, well, we're good with numbers. Right? And I just <laughs> I love the fact that it's actually all about, you know, communication, compassion and choice is, is a is a really great framework to 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 push, uh, I think, people to think differently about, uh, about payroll. Um, we are yeah. getting close to the end of, end of time um, in terms of the, uh, of the podcast. So, Mel, I, I think there's a lot of really interesting um, themes there. Anything? No, I think it's fantastic. I, I, I feel like we could run a webinar just on the financial wellness uh, part. Because, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I, well, let's do that. Yeah, I'm talking about it yes. so much. I love yeah. that. So, That's a great idea. Um, so thank you so much, Angela. It was a brilliant podcast. Really enjoyed it. You've had such an interesting um, career and I'm, I'm so glad that you shared that with the audience today. So um, thank you once again, Angela, for spending time with us. Thanks so much, Melanie. I had a great time. This podcast is made possible by ADP Global Payroll, giving you the confidence and transparency to transform global payroll into an engine for growth. Begin your journey at adp.com forward slash worldwide and connect with your local global expert.